0: Our text this morning is from Colossians chapter 2. And while the sermon text itself is only verses 13 through 15, I'm actually going to read a little bit more than that so you can get a better idea of the context in which Paul is writing. Hear the word of our God, starting in verse ah, 6. Therefore you therefore Who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would open our ears this morning, that we might listen to your word, that you would soften our hearts that we might believe your word this morning. We ask that you would renew your image in us so that we might obey your word even more. We ask this in the name of Jesus who saves sinners and sanctifies saints. Amen. For those of you who weren't here Thursday night, I've begun to indoctrinate my children in The Princess Bride. Heretofore, they had not had any experience with the Princess Bride. And so I started just to I I was just going to watch one scene for my sermon illustration Thursday night. And somehow got sucked into them sitting down and watching much of it. But we had to turn it off so we had dinner. So we finished it up Friday night. And I thought, boy, this is better than my illustration that I already had. So there's this point when uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts has been revealed to actually be Wesley, the one that Buttercup really loves. But what has happened is that the evil Prince Humperdinck has now come, recaptured the bride that he wants to marry for nefarious reasons, and has imprisoned Wesley in the pit of despair. He becomes angered that her heart is still still set upon this Wesley. He lies to her, saying that he will send ships to go find Wesley, and if possible, if Wesley really still wants her, that he will come back and get her. But he says, I don't think he will. Why would he want you now? And she says this, which is my basic point. Wesley will always come for me. She was so sure of the love of Wesley that she knew that he would come for her. Her hopes were set upon someone But little did she know that that someone lay in the pit of despair, mostly dead. Which leads us, really, to the gospel. For the one that we have rested our hopes on lay not mostly dead, but absolutely dead, completely dead, and yet even death could not prevent him from coming for us. The context of this passage in Colossians is that this is a church that Paul did not plant. Someone that Paul converted planted this church. Catch that. It wasn't just Paul, but men that Paul had converted had begun planting churches. And and so the church in Colossae was planted by Epaphras. But after the planting of this church, false teachers had begun to sneak into this church. And what they had been doing was getting these people who had placed their faith in Christ to begin to place their faith in rituals, in rites, in rules, not to become Christians, mind you, but to become more mature Christians. What they were saying was, is that, oh yeah, you've got some of the truth, but here's this additional secret stuff that we need to tell you so that you can really grow in Jesus Christ. As long as you just believe the gospel, you're going to be immature in Christ. Here's the real deal. And so Paul writes this letter because he has heard what is going on in Colossae and he begins to set them straight and we're really in the midst of him setting the, everything straight. And he gets to the idea of the resurrection as essential for setting it straight. The first thing that Paul wants to communicate to these people is that God makes dead sinners alive with Christ. Paul sets up a number of critical issues that are only resolved in Jesus Christ. What he is saying essentially is, Everything the false teachers are telling you that you have to do in addition to Jesus don't get you anything. It is all Christ. Everything that you want, everything that you need to grow in the Christian life is found in Jesus. You don't have to look anywhere else. And so the first of these is he sets up with this idea that you were dead in your trespasses, we were dead men walking. As a result of our sin, this is not something that is particular to Paul's uh, statements here in uh, to the Colossians, but we see it as well in Ephesians. and In chapter two, he starts off uh, by saying, "You were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course of this world." Okay, notice that first in, in, in Ephesians two, he says. You were dead. You, the Ephesians, were dead. But then later on in, that, that in verse 5, he says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Paul just saying, I was there too. Okay? It wasn't like Paul was alive when you guys were dead. Paul is saying, I too was dead in my sins and trespasses. And so Paul is setting up this, this idea that we are spiritually dead we were, apart from Christ, unable to positively respond to God. Okay, And not only were we spiritually dead, but we were awaiting, so like, like prisoners on death row, the second death. I thought of this yesterday. How, how do I communicate the idea that we're, that, we're, that we're spiritually dead and that we don't respond to God? We, we can read God's word, or we could have, and this is for non-Christians, okay? They can read God's word and not hear his voice. Sort of like my son or any other child, when he is bent on rebellion, when he is, when he is bent on disobedience, and in that moment you can cry out for him all that you want, and he will not hear. Before Christ, that was us. God crying out through His Word and us being just bent on our disobedience. We are not going to listen. We're going to do what we want to do. And so these trespasses, these sins, this disobedience brings us death. Outside of Christ, people are unable to do any spiritual good. We were, as it says here, helpless enemies. Second thing that he says in, in this section here is in addition to being dead in our trespasses, there's, we are also we're in the uncircumcision of our flesh. Separated from God, separated from his covenant people, which means no hope, no promise of eternal life. It is significant that one of the things that the false teachers demanded was that these Gentiles now receive circumcision. That was one aspect of what they said had to If you really want to become mature in Christ, you need to be circumcised. Okay? But here's what Paul says. Though you were dead, God made you alive together with him. This is the main verb of this whole section. All the others are participles and infinitives and all that fun stuff. This is the main thing. God made you alive. God is active. We are passive. We are the ones who are made alive, but God is the one who made us alive. But more significantly, we are made alive together with Him. God, who, as it said even earlier, raised Jesus from the dead. Okay, that's the key idea that is here. He raises Jesus from the dead, but also his resurrection, this resurrection of Jesus gives life to everyone who is united to him by faith. So Paul is speaking about regeneration. That when God joins us to Jesus, we partake of the new life, that resurrected life that he has not merely spiritually but physically but we have first we have this new spiritual life so that we're able to respond to god in the gospel we're able to believe and we await the physical resurrection which is to come okay so just as there were two aspects to our deadness there are two aspects to our aliveness in christ We are united to him by faith, however, not by circumcision. We are not even united to him by baptism. Baptism is a sign of our union with him. It is not the reality of our union with him. It is a sign of our being raised up with him, as Paul says here, but it is not the reality of our being raised up with him. And so God alone is able to raise the dead, but he first raises the spiritually dead with Jesus. Let's move to the second part of this, of what Paul kind of lays out. So God makes dead dead sinners alive with Christ. God also forgives guilty sinners in Christ. Paul presses even further into explaining what happens to all those who trust and Christ all those who rely on Christ and Christ alone to save them he addressed the lack of spiritual life already but what about that guilt and sin what about the trespasses that created the deadness Paul starts off he kind of like lays out these boom 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 that's Paul that's what he does okay so let's look at them boom 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 forgiven he has forgiven us all our Trespasses. Now, note, it does not say that God ignores our trespasses. It does not say that God sweeps them sort of under the rug. Okay? It's not that God kind of winks at them. Okay, well, you sinned. Oh, that's not too bad. He forgives them. This word, there's usually two words given for forgiveness. And one is, is to release, as in to release a debt. This is not that word. This is the other word. This is the word connected to grace. This is the word that we see at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, where he says, just as you have been graced in Christ Jesus, grace one another, which is usually translated, just as you have forgiven one another, just as you have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. That's this one. Freely pardoned. It's gone. Okay? We were, we were like death row inmates who have received a full pardon. The charges no longer stand against us. Second aspect that Paul draws out here and talks about canceling the record of debt, that there is a record that has been kept of our offenses. How many of you have been wondering why this is here? Good. I'm glad <laughs> well, you're paying attention. This is a record of most of our debts. They may not all apply to you, but I'm sure a few of them do. God keeps a record, or has kept a record, of our debts. Okay? And did I lose something? I don't know. Maybe I did. But the the picture that is here is that our offenses exist. They're, they're, They're kept... You know, the the greed and the pride, the hatred, the bitterness, the gossip, anger, injustice, gluttony, all of them. But the picture that Paul wants them to grasp is this that the slate is made clean. That's the Greek that's at work here. All the charges have been erased. They stand against us no more. God's not going to look back. Okay? Yeah. All of us, we apply for a new job. What's one of those questions? It's going to be there. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? Okay? And you can say no, but they'll find out. Okay? With this, there's no more, there's nothing to find out. It's been wiped clean. God's no longer going to bring that up against you. This is why Paul says in Romans eight, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as he says later on in that passage. Um, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who was at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? And so they've been taken away. We no longer live in guilt. No longer need need to live in guilt. Not only that, but Paul talks about the legal demands, the decrees, the charges, and sanctions that have also been set aside because of what Christ did. And the point is is that Christ bore them all. He bore our guilt. He bore our condemnation. He bore our punishment. He bore our debt. It is all done by Him. There's no little extra rite or ceremony that you must do to, you know, Cover over the sins that you commit after you first come to faith in Christ. You know, after you, you're baptized, it's not like, oh, now you must make up for the, some of these sins. He has borne them all. We see in Galatians 3 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that they might receive the promised Spirit through faith. And so, there are no sins left um, for those who rely on Him and His death as their substitute. There is nothing left for you to do to make it better between you and God. Jesus did it all. So God pardons all those whom He makes alive in Christ. The resurrection matters now. Brings us to the third thing, third aspect of this that Paul lays out, that God frees oppressed sinners in Christ. So we were dead sinners, we were guilty sinners, and we were also oppressed sinners. The false teachers had talked about appeasing these angelic beings as if they had power over us. And this was part of their secret knowledge that they they dispensed, that you had to make these angelic beings happy and part of how you did it was through these particular rites and rituals. And Paul is probably... He's probably like me sometimes when I read things on the Internet. <laughs> he probably heard this letter. He's like, "What? You've got to be kidding me." He begins to address this problem. and he talks about it. He, he talks about these elemental spirits earlier in this passage, okay? But, but here he says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. Okay, these rulers and authorities, we, we see this again in Ephesians. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces for evil in the heavenly places. And so Paul, unlike most modernists, believed that there were malevolent spiritual beings who oppress those who are outside of Christ, And still oppose those who are in Christ. Paul teaches this. I believe this because Paul teaches this. Okay? There is a devil. There are demons. Okay? Doesn't mean he's he's got a little pitchfork, he's red, and got little (laughs) horns in his head. That's what I'm saying. But there are spiritual beings who are evil and who seek to work us woe, as Martin Luther had said. And they seem to be powerful to us at times. But here's the good news. Jesus disarmed them. The language, the word that he uses is probably, it's not just he took their pistol away or, you know, the knife that they carried. The idea here goes beyond that has that idea to to take or strip off clothes or disarm. He stripped them naked of their power, of their privilege, of their authority. They've got nothing left. Not only that, but but Paul says, he exposed them. Think about this. To me, I, I just love how, how Scripture works in the sense of seeing the inspiration of Scripture that, that is not the product of a guy in a room writing stuff. Okay? What happened to Jesus? He was exposed. He was stripped naked. He was shown to supposedly be nothing when He went to the cross. And yet, it was through His own very weakness, not coming against strength with strength, but through submission, that He disarms. He exposes these evil powers for what they really are and takes their strength away. He shows us what they really are, which is nothing. In addition to that, God triumphs over them. They're defeated by Jesus, and we are set free. Let's talk about the lesser story that we started this off with. The man who's mostly dead. Okay. He's dragged to the castle where she is being held by Fezzik. He and his two friends, he can barely walk. He's been given this pill by Magic Max that would somehow bring him fully alive, and, and yet it's only working in parts, and so he's sort of like limping along and everything else. But they storm the castle, the three of them. They enter into the castle, and what you find is, is that the cruel oppressor, Humperdink and all of his men are nothing. They're cowards. They're cruel cowards. One of them, the, the six-fingered man that Indigo had been, had been seeking all of his life, when he faces him for the first time, the six-fingered man runs. He's a coward. There's nothing. Wesley finally meets Humperdink in his beloved's chamber, and he's resting upon the bed, his, and his beloved Buttercup does not know he has very little strength. And so in comes Humperdinck, and with mere words, he disarms Humperdink, who was afraid of a painful existence at the hands of Wesley. And so without even having to really get out of bed, Wesley reveals that Humperdink is nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's a picture of what Christ has done. He has revealed that they are nothing. And so, as Dick Lucas uh, in England has said, freedom from demonic forces is no second or subsequent work of grace to be sought at the hands of God. It is simply the gospel privilege for all. If you are in Christ, you have experienced the triumph over those enemies. Well, they may try. They may raise up, but they have no strength. They have no authority over you. But in all of this, Paul is borrowing an image that is familiar to most of the people in the Roman Empire, and that is the victory parade. When we think of parades today, we think of floats, right, and and, uh, big balloons, this kind of stuff. Well, for the victory parades, what you would have is you would have the general, the conquering general at the head of the parade, and behind him, you would have his army, okay? the show of force, the, the brave men who survived. Behind them, you would often find those who had been set free. And I'm sure they were pretty happy to be in that parade. But behind them, what you find is those who have been vanquished, stripped naked, revealed to be nothing. That's the image that Paul wanted his people to have. You are among those who have been set free. Rejoice. The ones that you feared so much and who oppressed you so much are at the end of the line, stripped naked, exposed as nothing. You don't need to fear them anymore. It's done. Because Jesus has prevailed There's that aspect of our freedom that still is there. Paul is worried about their freedom because what had happened is that these false teachers were coming to take away their freedom, just as we see in Galatians as well. But we see, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive again by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. And we see again in verse 16 and following this idea that let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. These these false teachers, in addition to rituals, had all of these rules. That if you want to be free, you have to follow all of these rules. And so it's Jesus and these rules. And what Paul is saying is that's not how you're free. The rules don't make you free. The rules don't keep you free. It is Jesus. He has done this. It is faith in the Messiah that produces this. Not rules. Don't go back to a new form of bondage. Don't go back to a legal form of bondage. Jesus frees us to obey him by faith The newness of life. But do you experience that freedom? Or have you gone back to bondage? It's significant that we're we're here at the Passover. Okay? If you were to ask one of the Jews who survived the Passover, okay, you, you come up against the you know, come up next to them in the desert. They're on their way to the promised land and you go, "Who are you?" Tim Keller says he would probably give this explanation of who he is. I was a slave under a sentence of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb and escape that bondage. And now God lives in our midst when we are following Him to the promised land. Paul, in many ways, is borrowing the language of the Exodus. He's borrowing the illustration of the Exodus because what happens in the Exodus before the Passover? God takes on the gods of Egypt and reveals them to be nothing. Nothing. He disarms and strips them before He sets His people free. But what do the people want to do whenever something bad happens? Like, oh, there's not enough water today, or I'm tired of the manna. What do they want to do? They want to go back to Egypt. Our human heart wrestles with this. We want to go back to Egypt because living with Christ sometimes is scary and frightening because we see all this stuff going on around us, and and it's not easy. And we want to go back to the clearly defined realities of Egypt. And Paul says, don't go back. Just as Moses said, don't go back. That's death. God redeemed you from it. Go to life. Embrace the the life that you have been given. So, So I find it significant that Sinclair Ferguson says this. What Christ is doing in you is still incomplete. I mean, Christ's not done working in you. But what Christ has done for you, there is not a single tiny crack that the satanic arrows can penetrate. Jesus Christ is your shield. So while our experience of our salvation can go deeper, the work that gets our salvation, is done. And it is more than sufficient. All right. Our only hope was in one who loved us enough to die for us. But he can't help us if he's dead. But God raised Jesus from the dead. And so we were given spiritual life with him We were pardoned for all the sins that killed us. And we were freed from our spiritual enemies. This is a true event that is far grander than any story that points to it, including children's stories. But is it shaping your life? Or are you still living in the death of guilt and bondage? Paul would say walk in the freedom you've been given walk in the power you've been given live in it let's pray Father it is uh, sometimes uh, strange that we can be so moved by a a children's story or movie but sometimes we're so unmoved by the story of Jesus the true story the one that is at the the hinge point of all of history. And so I ask that the gospel may grip our hearts and mold them like clay. Help us to live as people for whom the gospel is true. That we would live like people who are alive in God, who are forgiven by God, who've been made free by God. Help us not just to live like this, but to to help others find freedom in Christ. We ask this in the name of Him who made us alive, forgiven, and free, Jesus. Amen.